0: Meru Ten Uvi
1: Welcome to ConLangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. And with me, down the road a ways, is David Sallow. Hi, George. David is, uh... I don't think I've had... Have we had you on before, David?
0: This um, is my first time. I'm a uh, Conlangary virgin. Yes. So,
1: uh... David is the author of A Gateway to Sindarin. Uh, he's, uh, big... Big in the, uh... Con- online... conlang communities. Um... Uh, I think you are now on the LCS board, right?
0: That's correct. Just uh, came in a few months ago.
1: Yeah, just as I left. <laughs> so that's uh, David Salo, and uh, David has also worked also worked as a consultant for the Lord of the Ring mu- movies and a few associated things. Um,
0: but what we're talking about today is something completely different
1: right we have has nothing to do with tolkien or anything uh a project that David's been doing recently that I think is really great is looking into uh the history of conlanging. um all the way back to um you know all the way back to Hildegard von Bingen which um david you've you've told talked to me about that what she did is you know, interesting, but it's not what we would think of a, as a conlang today, right? It's
0: just yeah, sort of I'll a list of words. With a large uh, list of vocabulary, by no means a complete one, that was appropriate for her particular um, uh, circumstances as leader of a convent of nuns. And we don't know exactly how she used her, her um, list of vocabulary. Uh, we don't have examples of it being used um, in a fully self-contained context that we would call a language. So when I started looking for ways of getting back at the roots of conlanging, that didn't seem like a really helpful point to start. Um, It wasn't as if people were looking at Hildegard and saying, oh, that's really interesting. Um, I should I, we should do more things like Hildegard is doing. It was kind of a dead end. I mean it's a really interesting dead end, but um not something that really plays into the entire history of Langing.
1: Uh so you've been looking at a couple of languages. Um there's uh the uh David and I are in a group of conlangers that meets sort of locally here in Madison. So um uh we've been talking about this you've been looking into balibalan and uh which maybe we'll talk about sometime in the future it's so, sort of a, an invented language from uh the middle east um but uh the one that we're going to talk about today is uh, lingua philosophica um invented by George Delgarno uh so let Tell us a little bit about lingua philosophica, maybe about a little bit about George Delgarno. Just uh, the, the, the general overview first, and then we'll get into interesting
0: parts of it. Okay, so we're going back to the 17th century in Great Britain, um, which is a time of great social and intellectual ferment. Um, so at that time, we had a major civil war, in the three kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Um, And everybody was uh, full of new ideas, new politics, um, new uh, religion, new uh, educational ideas. Everybody wanted to bring their ideas out into the um, intellectual field. Uh, Because of the chaos, there was a lot of opportunity for people who had never been heard before. To get their voices heard. Everybody could now get their works printed. People bought things that were um, on the market and people talked about them. Uh, so George Delgarno kind of fits into this. Um, he, he doesn't seem to have made much of an impression um, on, on the intellectual world outside of this. He was a school teacher. He came from Aberdeen in Scotland, um, but he spent a lot of his life in Oxford just teaching. You know uh, young people to learn to read and write Latin, uh, which is what school teachers did at the time and one of the things that was part of this intellectual ferment was a sort of dissatisfaction with the state of linguistic communication uh, we had um at that time there was an effective international oxlang latin could be spoken by everybody in western europe uh, but latin was a difficult language it took people a very long time to learn it and to become proficient in writing and speaking of it and many of them never did and george delgarno as a school teacher would have been very um aware of that but there was something else going on as well as people got in touch with different languages from different parts of the world. So we're, we're in the middle of the colonial era now, and people are getting n- news and information back from other parts of the world, some of it very distorted way, um, but it makes them think. It makes them have ideas about different ways of looking at things and different ways of doing things. One of the things that was coming back to Western Europe uh, from the Orient was this notion that the Chinese had this amazing language where you could represent ideas directly through characters? Now you and I both know that that's not really how it works, right?
1: But that's right.
0: how it worked.
1: But and that's that that has um, that was inspiration for a lot of things. I think um, real character, John Wilkins' real character, had some inspiration from that.
0: Exactly. Uh, there was this idea that you could take something that would maybe not be exactly Chinese, but would be something like that. You could represent the core uh, ideas behind meaning, not, not just words, not just um, sounds, but the really basic philosophical notions that underlay everything and if you could do that people thought you could change the way that people thought you could make them have a better understanding of what they were thinking and the way that they were thinking um, and this was something that gripped people like wilkins and also george Delgarno, who was um and both of them Delgarno and wilkins were aware of each other's work for a time, they collaborated a little bit, but then they basically had incompatible ideas about what they were doing. Wilkins, I think, was much more interested in sort of the taxonomy of ideas, how you could arrange notions. Um, and in a way, he's sort of the ancestor of uh, the thesauruses that we have today and the way that they're arranged. Um, right. And- he, he
1: he was, um, like, all of his... Uh, words uh, his whole language was based on categories and like starting with one category and refining down into further categories right
0: right so every every single phoneme in uh wilkins's uh conception and he didn't even really think of them as as, as, as phonemes he actually thought of them as parts of these this written character that only incidentally could be pronounced um he uh He wanted each of those to have a meaning. Um, And Delgarno, uh, he did use some of those ideas, but he was really going in a different way because he was less interested in sort of the perfection of a scheme where everything would have meaning, and more in the practicality of being able to generate um, a language that people could actually speak and write. And unlike Wilkins, he did produce... A fair volume of, of of translations and in some cases of his own writing in this language that he invented in lingua philosophica um, and so it's you you can actually you can sit down and you can figure out what he what he went what he meant, what he was trying to write, even when he doesn't even when it's not a translation and he doesn't offer um, an explanation of what he's doing, but he's provided enough materials. Uh, to allow you to understand that, which shows this is a language. This is something that works two ways. You can write in it. You can encode information in it. Other people can get that information back out. So we are, we are looking well back into the history of conlangs. Um, and in, in Europe, at least, I don't think there is anybody before Dalgarno who was creating this kind of language Um, and Dalgarno's, uh, work, um, is, it does have an influence on what comes later, maybe not entirely directly, but, uh, people were aware of this kind of philosophical language. People wrote about it, uh, later on, um, uh, in later centuries, and they did, they might not exactly agree with the way that Garno, uh went about his um, creating his language, but they took it as a starting point from which to create their own languages, and this takes us right down to, um, uh, you know, we have 18th century attempts at creating perfect languages, and sort of as a reaction against this, we have things like Esperanto in the 19th century, which... Uh, Tried to get away from the philosophical and more towards the practical, but Dalgarno's was in its own way kind of practical um, and not as as insistent on being uh, philosophically perfect. And to people who are trying to uh, do a sort of history of ideas, that makes it less interesting. But to us as conlangers, it makes it more interesting. Uh, we can actually take a look at some of the ways in which he tries to encode uh, information, and find it fascinating uh, when it's even when it's not philosophically perfect. We just enjoy the uh, the use of different um, uh, devices uh, to um, to create to. to Uh, represent uh, what language meaning, um, what meanings can be gotten out of language. Uh, For instance, he comes up with this idea, and there is no... um, nothing in any languages that I can think of that he would have known that would have inspired him to do this. Um, But he gets the idea that he's going to create plurals for words, by doubling the last consonant in the, in the word. Um, and if it doesn't already end in a, a vowel, um, then he'll stick an I after it. So we have Canel, a king. When he um, uh, makes it plural, it becomes Canelli, kings. This is not something he would have gotten from Latin. It's not something he would have gotten from English or from any other language that he knew. It's just an idea that he came up with on his own. That's conlining. Um and so it's it's really fun to look at all these things that he does.
1: Right. And it it's not just that he's adding a consonant E suffix, because um the word gomu is pluralized as gommu lights. So it's it's it really is that he's geminating the the last consonant of the word. It's basically like a reduplication process. And, uh, also if there's no consonant to reduplicate, like if there, there's uh ph, buttock becomes fussy, you have to, he adds an, an S in there to, to geminate. But that's interesting. Uh, Yeah. I don't know like what languages would he be familiar with? What like Latin, maybe French, English, of course, um, Probably several European languages maybe uh
0: maybe some Hebrew and such, but um maybe Hebrew maybe some Greek, but you know the, the your opportunities in the seventeenth century for learning much beyond that are kind of limited
1: yeah so i don't I don't think any of those would have a plural that's formed that way I don't know uh like even languages I don't know about I know about I don't know off the top of my head a language that does it. Anything like this. So that's, that, that's, that is an interesting thing that he came up with that. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, you talked about, like, he's talking about, about, um, you know, he would have noticed that, you know, Latin is a little difficult to, for English speakers to learn and, might have had some reaction to that, but that's not necessarily an obvious thing for e- English speakers to learn e- any, either. So, it's sort of interesting, a sort of a, a creative decision on his part that isn't necessarily motivated by ease of learning or anything.
0: Yeah, I, it, it it certainly seems that one of his um, motivations was that you could create, you you could simplify things a lot by getting rid of a lot of the, you know, things that you find, uh, in other languages that are very arbitrary and very complex beyond what they need to be. And this is, this is something that people throughout 17th and 18th and 19th centuries bothered themselves about, you know, why does something like Latin have to be so complex? Why are there so many declensions? Why do they all look different from each other? Um, And so Dalgarno, like all of the uh, later writers in this vein, um, did profoundly simplify many, but not all, of the aspects of his language. Um, But he also thought that you could could convey certain philosophical ideas – through the means of this language, through not through what you were saying with the language, but through the actual structure of the language, that when people studied it, they would learn something about how people thought, they would learn something about how uh, concepts were constructed, and they would ultimately see that everything in the way people thought was based on certain ultimate basic concepts. So when he was started creating this language, he has this kind of list of of concepts that he thinks are are basic, and he invents um, roots uh, that um, correspond to these. And so these are for the most part um, roots composed of a couple of consonants and a vowel, um, and uh, sometimes just one consonant, one vowel, um, and each, th- these can get, uh, um. Even, even that part makes it, separates
1: it a little bit from other philosophical languages because you're, you're talking about, um, his roots are not like a consistent size and shape, right? A lot of times philosophical languages, the roots will be like a specific, Syllable structure.
0: Yeah, I mean, for the most part, they are they are monosyllabic. Some of them aren't. Some of them are evidently... Uh, was, he was working with a system where he had only... Um, he had a limited number of, of consonants, only seven vowels. Um, so he, he kind of restricted himself in that way, and sometimes he had to kind of burst the bounds and make things a little bit longer. But when he's trying to... Uh, create some of these basic ideas. Um, uh, He has uh, notions like um, size, so he groups together a bunch of words for uh, length, width, depth, straightness, um, and these all begin with the same consonant. So, um, long is bam, wide is bam, deep is baf, straight is bob. And when he wants to make The converse of these things, he has this interesting idea of sticking an R sound after the consonant. So if Bam is long, then Bram will be short. Um, If Ban is wide, then Bram will be narrow. Um, This is not something which I know of as as something that exists in any natural language. So it does make this language kind of distinctive. Um, that he has these, these modes.
1: I mean, um, most languages have some way of deriving, uh, you know, opposites or negatives, but, uh, you know, one is he's using an infix for it, which is not necessarily gonna, we're gonna see so much. And the other thing is, you know, I think this is, this is a thing that we see with, um, philosophical conlangs, and even getting up into some oxlangs like Esperanto, just using that sort of opposite derivation,
0: like wholesale, all the time, right? Yeah, so you've got Esperanto with its mal prefix, and he's doing something of the same sort, but I think he does it in actually a more interesting way, because he can now create something which is... Its own root, it just happens to be um, a, a little more uh, phonologically conf- complex instead of consonant-vowel-consonant. Consonant. Now we have consonant-consonant-vowel-consonant, consonant, consonant, but otherwise it's going to obey the same rules as all of these other roots. Now the roots that he uses are abstract. They don't actually have a necessary um, meaning outside of this vague philosophical one. But to make them actually into words... He does things like add suffixes, add prefixes, combine them into compounds. So he's really thinking about the ways in which you can generate uh, vocabulary. When you have a root that is just by itself, it tends not to be a noun or a verb. Um, It tends to be something like an adverb, a preposition, or a conjunction. And he uses these um, in fairly conventional ways— uh, from at least the point of view of an English speaker. Um, but the the thought that is behind them is that every one of these prepositions, for instance, is going to have an underlying philosophical meaning, which is going to show up maybe in some other nouns or verbs. So we have the pair, um, the prepositions from and to are sod and should. He uses should because he decided that you couldn't actually... Um, Put an R after the S. He didn't like the sound of "srod," so he made it "shod." Um, just you know, something that, that that shows us something of his own sort of fun aesthetic prelections. Actually, going into this, um, but when you look at the list of roots, you find that "sod" means action, activity, um, and that's uh, um, and "shod" means. Uh, being acted upon, in enduring something else's action. So from sword is presumably because it's something that comes from the action of the agent. Shod too is 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 telling you about which which thing after the Shod is going to be the recipient of that action. One of the most common words that you find in his texts is sef means of comes from a root which means to pertain or to belong Um, sas uh, by itself tends to be um, the preposition for its basic root is um, the sense of cause and that's found other places it happens to be part of his word for god is uh, sava or sasva Uh, sas means cause va comes from his numeration a system, which is basically his, his, his alphabet, uh, in, in um, the vowels of his alphabet in order uh, give you the basic numbers, and A happens to be the first one, V just shows you that this is a number rather than something else, so sas Cause, Va, number one, or first. First Cause is the philosophical idea that he imagines being connected with God, that's his idea. So he ties all of these things together, a very common preposition, and the word for God and I just think that's fascinating,
1: yeah, that's that and um more than that the, the see these these things really end up revealing more about the assumptions of the author and of the time that they were living in than uh, you know any actual deep. You know, real, like, concepts of the world, right? Because the, the truth is that there aren't really universal concepts, but we learn by looking at one of these philosophical languages, what concepts the author believed to be universal.
0: Right. Uh, we're, we're getting, um, when you, when you start learning about how this language, um, works, you do sort of end up Delving into the 16th, 17th century intellectual life, um, and getting a sense of what that was like. Um, and, you know, there's, there's no way anybody is going to be able to extract themselves from their own time and place and, uh, totally come up with ideas that don't have, um, that aren't traceable back to, uh, their own upbringing and the intellectual life that surrounds them. Um, but Delgarno did manage to avoid some of the things that, um, other languages of his time were sort of, uh, bedeviled by. So he's one of the, uh, first people who, um, you know, creating a Kong Lang Decides, you know, we don't really need to have grammatical gender. We can just, we can do without it. We can have, um, the same word, kanel, mean either king or queen. And we're just not going to bother with, uh, marking gender in that way, unless it's something that's really pertinent to the actual biological categories. Um, so he's, he's, he's a little bit, um, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe ahead of his time in, in that respect. Um, and certainly he's you know surrounded by languages where some form of grammatical gender. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. Most English. of most of the languages that he would be exposed to would have what we call sex-based grammatical gender. So you know the fact that he w- broke out of that is. You know, getting a little bit outside of his usual, what he would usually be exposed to, yeah.
0: And even in English, there are points where you have to decide whether something is a him or a her. Um, and uh, in in this language, there's none of that. You know, there there are no gender based differences in pronouns. Um, the, the the closest thing you're going to get to Gender is in a distinction between things like um, mother and father, which in his philosophical system translate literally as um, begetter, pagel, and uh, bearer, pragel, And that's about it. Uh, it's really actually hard to um, express gender distinctions in this language.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. You know, by looking into this, uh, language, you can see sort of what he was, what, you know, what, what concepts he was trying to elevate, what concepts he was trying to, uh, push aside that way. Um, one thing, uh, if we can talk about for a little bit, I've been, I was thinking about one fact that you, you have to deal with when you're, studying looking at a conlang that you know is so old and is was long before you know the modern you know methods of of uh language documentation and language um description is you don't exactly always know what he means by everything right and like just even in the the phonology uh, I'm looking at the, the, the Effects article here and they're talking about, you know, the, the vowels. We have a guess as to what the vowels are, but we're not, you, we can't be totally sure because we have to sort of think about, okay, what was his native, um, dialect and what would be the phonology there. And then the other thing is, uh, what does, tell,
0: tell me, what does F represent? That's a really good question. Um, and Delgarno uh, does have a sort of basic grasp of phonological categories. Um, it's not its not by any means as, as, as detailed as what we have now, but he understands that um, consonants are made with different kinds of articulators, that there are such things as high and low and front and back vowels. Um, and he tries to express... His own ideas within these categories, is basically as as, as well as he can, but without recordings, um, we can only sort of guess as to what he actually means. Um, with regard to the f, he at one point in his explanation of his sounds, it's clear that he intended intends the grapheme f to represent the sound of ng. Um, the
1: velar nasal,
0: right. The velar nasal, as in words like hang and sing. Um, however, it's not clear that the fact that he's using the F that way...
1: Oh, my. What? What happened now? If I'll even put this, I don't know if I'll even put this in, but... Microsoft, do not allow Skype to update in the middle of a call. <laughs> <sighs> All right. So shall we go to just- the ridiculous okay so uh you were talking about um the f in linguist philosophica and how um at first it seems like he means it to represent the the uh the 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 the, the, the velar nasal as in sing the mm sound
0: yeah um so Delgarno comes up with symbols to represent the main sounds of um Well, he's he's actually talking about languages in general, uh, and later on about lingua philosophica in particular. So he makes it clear that he's using the F to represent a velar nasal, an um sound, Um, in in general terms. It's not quite so clear that he intends that to be pronounced that way when someone is uh, speaking lingua philosophica. Um, He does make it pattern- with um, the sounds M and N to some extent, um, the other nasals, and when he uh, creates a alphabet, uh, a specific alphabetical order for Lingua Philosophica, um, the first consonants are M, N, and then F, um, followed by B, D, and G. So he's got a pattern there where he goes labial, coronal, velar, um, and F isn't exactly the place where you'd expect there to be a velar nasal. But he does use it in ways that he knows people are going to find difficult. He uses it at the, at the beginning of, um, of a word, before a vowel. He uses it before R and before L. Um, and it seems that he was thinking, since it's so hard for people to actually pronounce these, at least in any languages that he knows, they, they, this sound didn't exist... Uh, in those positions, he was going to say, okay, let's just substitute the sound of F for the sound of N in those places. Um,
1: Right. So when I I said uh, before, you know, F as uh, products, that could be N, right? It
0: it would pronounce it that way.
1: Which is, yeah. It's not, you know, it's not that weird, actually. Uh, There are plenty of languages that have that, in those positions, but not language that he would know. So that's, that is an interesting question of whether he intended to, the F to have these different pronunciations, which would be sort of an, you know, like an odd little artifact of the way that he constructed the language.
0: That's true. Um, so that kind of, maybe I'll just give a sort of brief overview of what kind of language this is. Um, it's, uh, it's based on these, these roots. And for the most part, um, all of the morphemes in the language, uh, either they're the, the roots themselves or they're a very small number of additional affixes, which can be agglomerated onto, to the roots. And there's very little in the way of phonology, but there is some, he does try to avoid having certain sequences which would make it difficult to tell where a root began or ended. Um, so, if he has a suffix which begins with a vowel, um, and, it's not, and it's going to follow a, a root that ends in a consonant, there could then be two ways of interpreting that. Um, if, if you could read the consonant that the root ends with as actually beginning another root... Um, so you could have a CV root and then a CVC root that are compounded. He wanted to avoid that ambiguity, so he sticks in an I that um, would um, make it clear. So um, his word for to, uh, to delete or to um, uh, annihilate is sofia um, which uh, has the, um, the element sof which means to lack or to um, to be without, uh, and then it has this um, root av as well, uh, which is being, existence. Um, and if he just had so fav, then it might, he might say, well, people could read that as a root so and a root fav, um, so we're going to avoid that confusion by sticking an I in there, and that will know that's the break between the two roots. Um, had- yeah,
1: and, and I think uh, we see that with um, even now with people who do ed- Englangs and such. Right, they might not necessarily do it the same way, but they might build phonotactics in such a way that they're that the root boundaries are unambiguous, right? So this is maybe like a very early uh, way of thinking about that idea of making the word structure unambiguous.
0: Right. And another thing that he does is to, um, to stick in an S when otherwise you would be having two, two vowels coming together. Um, he wants to avoid, and this happens a lot with, um, Verbs, because he has this very regular structure, where um, if you want to create a uh, a verb form, and he has a fairly um, complex system of of, of, of tenses and uh, signs for active and passive voice. Uh, active is a, passive is o, um, and if they're just by themselves. Then that gives you the active and passive participles. But then other things can be added onto them. Um, for instance, the uh, word "kanel," which I mentioned for um, for king or ruler, uh, is the root "kan" to rule, a the active uh, marker, and then "l," which is some kind of personal agent. So it's the person who is ruling is a king. Um, and that's actually it's, – it's very satisfactory in its own way of uh, – a, a, a way of breaking that part down into, um, into elements. Uh, but then he has um, signs for present tense, future, um, past or perfect, various kinds of infinitives and imperatives. And all of these are vowels, and they're being stuck um, after – uh, another vowel, which represents the active or passive inflection. Um, so, uh, makes or creates. Um, the root is is sam, which is again related to that uh, uh, sas, cause, again. Um, we're, we're talking about ways of, of causing or creating things. Um, same is making, the participle, but if you want to say he or she makes, then you add the present um, tense morpheme E, but instead of saying same E, he makes it same C. And that's uh, oh a sign that there's a sort of interaction between the sort of philosophical perfection and the phonesthetic the um, uh, intuitions that he had. Uh, that, you know, really it wouldn't sound so good if we said AE. So there's a very personal imprint uh, on the language that we see there that goes beyond the idea, well, it's philosophical, it's going to be totally abstract, it's not going to be speakable. Pe- people are making, you know, the way we think about philosophical languages is not really intended to be spoken. That wasn't Dalgarno's way of approaching it at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's not really, it's sort of a cross between like a philosophical language and sort of an art lang type thing. And that he does have aesthetic preferences from what you're telling me. And he does have like ideas also, maybe maybe some ideas that are a little bit more oxlingy. It doesn't really fit into the categories we have now, which a lot of languages don't really fit into those categories. They're just
0: useful useful things to talk about but um indeed we, we shouldn't expect it to fit into categories we're talking about something the guy started writing this uh, creating this around 1655 so right in the middle of um uh cromwell's protectorate um was able to finish it and printed it about five or six years later right at the beginning of the reign of uh, King Charles the Second, he had no he had no precursors, he had no precedents, he had nothing he could look at and say, "Oh, this is how people have done it before me. I'm going to imitate them, or I'm going to react against them." He was just doing this out of the top of his head, whatever came into his mind. This is how it ended up, and that's just, you know, there is such a, a, an amazing amount of freedom in that that modern-day Konglangers can't really expect. <laughs> They're not like, oh, oh we, we can just um, we, we can ignore uh, all of these centuries of history, and we can just uh, do whatever we want. We, we, we know that when we go out there and we say, okay, look at my conlang, people are going to say, um, yeah, somebody else already did it that way once. <laughs> but Dalgarno didn't have Dalgarno was just alone for a while.
1: Well, I mean, uh a lot of us kind of started out a little bit alone in that like we might have been inspired by one conlang or something, but didn't find the community until later. But yeah, um that that is an interesting point. But I, I I'm just saying like, you know, it might be an interesting exercise to like try to see where this language fits on the Noli triangle or whatever, but um uh you know obviously those categories those ideas about what a an invented language can be were not around at that time
0: yeah um and and really i don't know if there's aside from the 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 regularity which is very much oxlang slang like um really the, the the most philosophical thing about it is that these um Related roots tend to begin with the same consonant. Uh, it really doesn't get much deeper than that. Um, right.
1: It's not. It's not like a lot of philosophical languages where every like every segment is mean, meaningful. Right. That's it's true. M- it's more like he 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 made different concepts have sort of a family resemblance in yeah. the roots, and then
0: had a lot of derivational machinery that he used a lot. Exactly. And some of the derivational machinery um, is interesting and unusual in itself, and I'm not really sure where he would have gotten some of the ideas for it. He's got a causative suffix, um, uh, an R which goes after um, a root. So, poneso is to love, but ponreso is to cause to love. And so that, that actually, that uh, uh, causative affix shows up a fair bit in his writing, so it's it's fairly productive. He also does a lot of compounding, and some of the compounds, because he, he did try to go beyond the roots he had and to generate a larger vocabulary. Um, mm-hmm. As you do. <laughs> as you do. And uh, he has a fairly long list of, what is it, one thousand three hundred and seventy Latin words, which he has translated sometimes multiple times into, uh, sometimes just into roots, sometimes into short phrases, and so we can kind of see how he um, how he thinks about reducing more complex con- concepts to these sort of basic philosophical uh, notions. Um, so for one um, equinoxium, an equinox, uh slon dungom dangrom. Um, and that whole thing is just one phrase which which re- represents this this concept of an equinox. Slon is um, one of a set of uh, quantity um, roots, uh, son, slon, shon, um And slon is the one in the middle. It means equally. Um, It's also the um, conjunction meaning as or so. Um, Dan-gom is day. Uh, Dan is a sort of general time reference, um, but particularly a day. Gom is light, so the time of light is day. Dan-grom, grom uh, grom is the opposite of gom, so that's darkness. Dan-grom, time of darkness, is night. So slon-dan-gom, dan-grom, equal day, night. That's um, equinoxium, equinox. Other interesting things he's got. Um, quite a lot of these. Um, oh, here's here's one. Um, the uh, word he uses is um, uh, in Latin automatos, um, and I'm not really sure. I've asked some other Latin scholars what this what this means. I think it's referring to some kind of a clock. But that's based entirely on the definition that he gives in Lingua Philosophica, which is sabdan, dame, lol. Um, sab is a prefix that is used an awful lot of uh, words, which means an instrument, something that you use to do something with. Dan is time, so it's an instrument of time. Dame is this present participle moving, the root dam to move. Lol itself, so instrument of time moving itself is automatos um and there are all of these um uh one of the things that we see in his compounds is that they are almost always um head left so the basic idea comes first any modifying idea comes second um and i think this is this is not something that he would have seen in most of the languages that he was accustomed to. I think it's just out of his own idea of what's philosophically appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, karker, a prison, is dad kog, dad a place, kog imprisonment. Kalwities, um boldness, is grug sofiam, grug a sickness, sof being without am um, hair. So a sickness of without hairness is, is boldness. Um, And he's got a bunch of really interesting um, animal names. And all of these come from uh, this really complex taxonomy of animals that he worked into this, where you start out distinguishing between um, those animals which are... um, uh, I I guess this corresponds uh, more or less to... Uh, What would later be called um, invertebrates and vertebrates, but he's got um, uh, one set which he calls um, uh, uh, exangue, bloodless, and another which is sanguineum, having blood in the veins. Uh, Then he divides it into aerial beasts um, or birds, uh, watery beasts or fishes, uh, terrestrial beasts. And the terrestrial beasts can be derived into those which um, uh, lay eggs, those which have solid hooves, those which have uh, uh, split hooves, um, those which are large and have um, many toes, uh, those which are small and have few toes, and those which uh, dig underneath the earth. Um, So it's a a kind of amusing sort of uh, division um may remind some people of borges i guess um uh, and uh these get um these become the prefixes by which more specific animal names uh, are um are given so the word for horse is uh nickpot um nick is an animal with a cloven hoof pot means uh, spirited or brave um uh elephant is naksuf. Uh, animal with a solid foot. Um, Sof means really big uh, or great. Um, A dog is Nikprim. Nik is one of the larger animals that has many toes. Um, Prim means wise. And my favorite of these is the word for cat. Um, uh, Nok DTM. Um, Nok is a smaller terrestrial animal. Uh, with blood in its veins that has um, uh, many toes um, so it belongs to that subcategory DT is uh, covering or concealing something and M is feces so Nogditium is the small animal with many toes that covers its own litter and <laughs> Uh if you've spent as much time as i have scooping cat litter this um this really has meaning.
1: Well yeah, i i mean and even if he didn't if uh i presume at his time most cats were outdoor cats it's pretty you know well known that cats just have an instinct to bury their their um feces. So yeah, that's a that's an interesting uh way of describing a cat. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's all very interesting. Now, um, I have a question, um, is his original like dictionary and, and uh, description available
0: online? Um, I have not seen it in a, like on a page or anything like that. Um, uh, the, uh, the material I got came from a Google book which is actually not of his um original text it's a reprint that was made in 1834 for the Maitland Club which was a Scottish society for the um preservation of of Scottish works sort of uh, their their idea was that they were going to prove to the english that the scots could think too um so whenever some one of their members discovered something interesting that had been written by a Scot and was out of print or was in danger of being lost they would reprint it um, so this is part of the complete so, works of so, George Dal-
1: Yeah, Got, Scottish guy invented a language we gotta get on that one <laughs> yeah. um, for, for so, 1834
0: that's uh, it, it's, 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 it's it's neat that they, they thought that this was worthy of, of preservation even though probably they didn't really understand what he was trying to do <laughs>
1: Yeah. The that's that is um interesting. Well, maybe we will I will try to link to that. It is in Latin. Uh so if you happen to read Latin, you can you can if uh I can find that then then maybe you can uh take a look at it yourself. Um uh one last thing, um you mentioned one of the things that he did that other people of the time didn't necessarily do is he Actually, translated a few texts in his language,
0: so right. that we can we can see it being used. Well, like like most other um, people who were trying to do something in this vein, he did translate the Lord's Prayer, but he went quite a bit away beyond that. So he translated the entire first chapter of the Book of Genesis. He translated um, five, uh, the first five of the Book of Psalms. Um, and he translated uh, two um, of Aesop's fables. Um, uh, one of them is the fable about uh, King Stork and King Log, um, and the other is a fable about a fox and a monkey um, uh, who's... who's, who's, who's uh, I, I don't quite recall the point of the Uh, ladder fable, but I do recall that it's about a, um, the the, the monkey asks the, uh, uh, fox if he can borrow his tail to cover his buttocks. Okay. So no North wind of the sun,
1: but there's, there's, there's a a few things.
0: And he also wrote, um, a foreword to his, uh, um, uh, to his book, which is written entirely in lingua philosophica. It's addressed to King Charles the and it explains why he um why he wrote it and uh why he thinks this would be useful um for King Charles to sort of endorse. Um and he does not provide a translation, so you actually have to learn the language before you can figure out what he's trying to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and m- most of it is uh, about saying that people will admire kings if they um if they support the arts of peace um and uh, that people admire um a nation which uh, uh puts its effort into um increasing art and knowledge and uh, that he um, he's therefore offering Charles an art, he says, um, which is greater than any that has been uh, discovered in many previous um, lifetimes. So he obviously had a, a high opinion of of his own of his own work, and he thought that this was really um, going to be something which uh, could could make his name and and would would reflect well upon the king if if he were to uh, uh give it some kind of um endorsement um now he, he he did get the endorsement i don't think it worked out quite as well for him as as he hoped but uh you know well, we're he did get the it. endorsement hmm? he did get an endorsement uh, the king did write something very briefly i think saying that uh let me see. Um, we have been informed concerning the great pains taken by George Delgarno in a scholastic literary design of a universal character and philosophical language. And uh, that uh, is the king's diverse learned men have approved and committed his discovery, judging it to be of singular use for facilitating facilitating the matter of communication and intercourse between people of different languages, and consequently a proper and effectual means for advancing all the parts of real and useful knowledge, civilizing barbarous nations, propagating the gospel and increasing traffic and commerce. <laughs>
1: um, of course, of course, part of it's gonna be civilizing barbarous nations. Uh. So,
0: so he he does um, express his favor and um, basically encourages people to. To buy Dalgarno's book, but I don't think he actually gave him any money. Um.
1: Right. Uh, There was no funding with it and probably didn't, uh, didn't do very well at the time anyway. But, uh, it's interesting. It's definitely very, a very interesting, um, you know, development early in the history of conlanging. Um, I think that's all that we're, we will do for now we're we're running around uh we're we're running to around an hour and uh i'm sure you could talk about this this for a long time david
0: but uh uh i don't want to you know extend the show out i that, could be cut as well but thank you thank you george for hosting this i do appreciate it and it's um hope we can get b- back together and talk about some other things as well later on.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I, I, I'd love to, uh, in the future, get you on to talk about, um, you know, other things you're researching for this, you know, conlang history project you're on, you know, uh, by is interesting too. And, um, or, you know, any, uh, any other things that you'd be interested in talking about, but, um, uh, I'm going to say that's about it for um, for this month. And thank you, David. Uh, is there any th- just last thought you would want to share before leaving us? I'd uh, just like to thank everybody for listening. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm i going to say um, first, uh, I'll try to track down the, the Google book and see if I can link to that. Um, I'm going to link to the the lingua philosophica article on LinguaFex, which is just a very brief summary, uh, and you know it's a very interesting piece of conlanging history, and uh, you know not the kind of thing we usually talk about on this podcast because we're we're usually more the art langy uh, conlangs for con, con world thing. At least I am um, here, so. Um, It's interesting to see some of these early philosophical languages and such and discuss those. So, anyway, uh, thank you, David. Thank you. For bringing your expertise here. And um, thank you to all our listeners. And I'm going to say happy Conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google, and on Tumblr now. All of those you just find Conlangery. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our theme music is by Null DeVice, and our new site was designed by Bianca Richards.